John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we embark upon this brand new series together in the Gospel of John. My hope would be that Jesus meets you in really real and profound, life-changing, life-transforming ways. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5 starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray, and we'll jump in. So Jesus, right now, we ask you that you would open our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our thoughts to uh, receive this um, Mount Everest of revelation. Um, God, that it would impact us and reshape us, and we'd orient our lives around all that you are as you've revealed yourself to be. So we trust this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? John chapter 1, verse 1. So we jump into this massive, brand new series uh, looking at the life of Jesus. Um, Before we even jump in, I just want to make a couple real quick comments that the Gospel of John, we're going to see lots of different themes arise that John kind of focuses on certain themes. He actually builds the book around a certain framework of, of miracles and uh, signs, if you would, that Jesus does. His whole aim at the very end is to really kind of convince you. So what I like to think of this as is it's a journey. It's an adventure. And as we read this and think about it and process it, my hope would be would be that, that you would look at this with brand new eyes. Um, I think there's a danger that probably many of us have is that we are so overly familiar with Jesus, so overly familiar with him that he doesn't shock us anymore. We, we kind of yawn. That's yawn-worthy. That's, that's a shocking admission. But to think of it this way, that if Jesus just becomes somebody that's just another, like, man, he's a great guy, he did awesome things, and how cool is that, and what are we going to eat for lunch? If that's the way that we see Jesus, my hope would be that we look at him in fresh eyes and realize really the, the, the depth and the breadth of what John, uh, the apostle, is bringing us into an awareness of. Uh, the truth that's here. And the truth is not just simply abstract truth. That's something that we can look at and just sort of be like, wow, isn't that, that's fascinating. Jesus is not intended to be just another fascinating detail that we can think about and kind of add to our, you know, our, our library of interesting data points. Um, but really it's a truth that brings us into the, the center of all things as they are so that we then become a part of what it is that God is up to in this world. In other words, it's an all-life transformational thing that this is all about, that this journey is all about, which means it has the possibility and the potential of radically changing you in good ways. And I would suggest to you that all of us here, no matter where you're at, whether you are a follower of Jesus, whether you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you've grown up knowing about Jesus, whether you've just recently kind of just jumped into the whole idea of understanding who God is, regardless of where you're at, all of us recognize that there are various aspects in our life that need to be changed and transformed. We realize we're not, we're not perfect people. We have areas that are broken. We have areas that are messed up, areas where there's chaos. All of us live within a world that we know that our world is filled with chaos and brokenness. So we, we are radically aware of the fact that something needs to be fixed 
within ourselves, but also within our world. And uh, the, the problem is that all of us have different um, pathways on how to get there and different solutions and different means by which to kind of fix the things within and the things without. And what Christianity offers is a radical way of viewing the world in which God is at the center. He is the creator of all things, which means he has purpose. He has meaning to instill into our lives. And that means that no matter what type of chaos you may find yourself in right now, God has the ability. God makes the claim that he can take that chaos and bring order out of it. That's really good news, by the way, because nothing else promises that in this, in this world. Nothing else promises that. Nothing else, or at least can at least make good on that promise that the gospel seems to make as a declaration before us. And as we jump into this, I want to make a couple of real quick um, ideas or observations with regard to, you know, if you are familiar with the next slide, uh, the, the idea of gospels. Um, sometimes we'll say that there are four gospels. Technically, there's actually one gospel. Is, I think this is just a small little technicality. It's kind of like when people say, I like the book of Revelations. There is no book of Revelations does not exist. There's a book of Revelation. Drop the S. Drop the S. Drop the S. It's the book of Revelation. It's one of those like little pet peeves of mine. But the point of the matter is there's one gospel, one gospel for accounts. It's important. You know, small little details like this, but I think it's helpful because I don't ever want people to think that there are four gospels, four pathways to God. There's not. There's one pathway to God, and that pathway is Jesus. And we would call that the good news or the gospel. There are four uh, ways in which this is identified, four accounts, but one gospel. Um, what's in, interesting, each one of these guys that write this, um, they approach this story of life, uh, Jesus' life, from different aspects. So, for example, Matthew and Luke, they begin at the birth of Jesus, as it says up here. Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus, as when Jesus just kind of jumps on the scene and Mark just immediately takes us into the place where Jesus is beginning to build his little posse of friends called disciples and apostles. Uh, John uniquely approaches this entire story of Jesus from a radically different angle. So rather than starting with the birth of Jesus, which he doesn't even mention anything about, ironically, he doesn't mention anything about um, sheep or, you know, the inn or the magi or a little star in the sky. None of that. He literally starts with Jesus from what we would describe as like eternity past. Um, and this is what John wants us to understand, that this is the pre-creation story or reality of Jesus. Not that Jesus was created, which we'll find out, but Jesus is actually the creator. This is the claim that John is making, and it's a radical claim as we will begin to identify and see. Um, there's lots of different themes that John addresses throughout his gospel. Themes like light and darkness. He's constantly uh, contrasting light, people of light, and people of darkness. He's also contrasting oftentimes life and death. Uh, these are realities that John wants to consistently contrast. So we live in a world of, of death. We are oftentimes affected or impacted, or I should say always affected and impacted by death. We will one day die. We oftentimes uh, conspire with death to bring about death in lives of other people. We do things. We act in ways that bring about brokenness and hurt and chaos. And what the claim that John's making about Jesus is that Jesus comes in to do something about death and chaos. In darkness. And this is the radical claim that he actually invites us to look at who Jesus is, to embrace who Jesus is, to, to, to com commit our lives entirely to over to all that Jesus is up to in this world. 
So with that, I want to just jump in. We'll begin to take a look at various passages throughout what we had just read. I'm going to be teaching this just kind of line by line, verse by verse, just kind of word by word, phrase by phrase. And we'll just make some observations and ideas as we go along. So first of all, let's just take a look at the very first intro section where it says, In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, again, if you're Jewish, which John himself was, John was also writing a lot to predominantly Jewish uh, readers, and they would have been familiar. So this phrase, in the beginning, would immediately, like, think of it as a hyperlink. You know, I like to think of it in this term, uh, you know, when you're reading a web page and you see something that's blue and underlined or it's emboldened or it's uh, italicized or something, you realize that's a hyperlink. It means you can press it and it will take you to another thing. That's exactly what John's doing. So as you're reading this, you realize in the beginning should immediately take you back someplace else. In this context, obviously, going to take you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that John's making this deep connection between Whoever Jesus is, which we, we don't know the name of Jesus yet in the authorship or the reading of this book yet. We just know him as identified as what? The word. The word. So let's follow the train of thought in which John is introducing us to this. Again, we know it's Jesus because, again, some of you guys, spoiler alert, have already figured this out. But the point of the matter is, at this particular juncture in the book, we know whoever it is he's referring to is the word. The word. Whoever the word is, the word was in the beginning, um, there in this particular prime, primordial, like pre-creation uh, uh, world. So what we know so far, there's a lot of uh, speculation that maybe what John was referring to was the word logos, is the word for word, logos, idea or thought. Some have suggested that this is kind of a, this is John's wink at kind of a philosophical worldview around him, which was kind of associated to the 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 Grecian philosophers of the day. It's very possible, but it's also very likely that because John was Jewish, he was very deeply connected and tethered to the ancient historic scriptures. He was also aware of the fact that God also throughout scripture refers to this idea of the word being part of a creative act. So I'll read you a couple passages from here. So Psalm uh, 33 verse 6 says this, Yahweh merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed his word and all the stars were born. Psalm 107 says this, verse 19 and 20. Yahweh sent out his word and he healed them, rescuing them from death. So what was the agent of healing? His word. Uh, it goes on to say in Psalm 10, uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 55 verse 11. It says, my word goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. And the verse just prior to that, he describes, or kind of makes a parallel between word and uh, the, the rain. So the rain goes down, but it doesn't return. But in this particular context, God's word goes out. It accomplishes that which he intends and then goes back to him. So there's this, uh, this agent. It's an agent of God's creation. Whoever the word is, whatever the word is, it's an agent of God's healing. It's an agent of God's new creation. So this idea, what I want for us to think about of the word, whoever and whatever the word is at this particular juncture in the reading, um, has, it's, 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 it has agency to do something that God intends for it to do. So again, we're just kind of walking through this. Uh, and then last one, um, the Proverbs gives us this little insight. Proverbs chapter 8, if you want to uh, address for this. At, Proverbs 8, verse 22. And this whole entire proverb in this particular chapter refers to another agent of God's creation is wisdom. It says that God created the world through wisdom. But in Proverbs 8, it's interesting because wisdom actually takes upon the form of a female. And it, 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 
kind of personifies wisdom as a beautiful woman that is at work creating something amazing and good. And this is the agent, or this is the image, or the picture, or the metaphor that God is using to describe an active creator or creation. And it says this in Proverbs 8.22, The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of his work, and his first acts of old ages ago I was set up, that is Lady Wisdom, at first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains had even been shaped before the hills, I was brought forth. So whoever this lady wisdom is, this personification of wisdom, sounds very similar in terms of language that John is describing whoever this word is, that this word has agency to do something, was with God in this pre-creation world, which we're going to begin to unpack. The next little movement in the passage describes, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So again, to identify this, this is chapter 1, verse 1b. So whoever this word is or was, was with God, and the word was God. So I think it's important right now to even just pause and like ask ourselves a question. Do we even know what we're talking about when we use the word God? The word God is filled with a lot of baggage. Would you agree with that? You can just walk around and be like, I believe in God. Wonderful. What does that even mean? I don't know. But I believe in it. Her. Him. It. Whatever. Some great cosmic, you know, spaghetti monster in the sky. And I call that God. What do we mean when we mean God? I think it's really important for us to think about. Like, what, what is God? Who is God? And, and what are we referring to? And especially more importantly, not so much what are we referring to and not even so much what you think about God, uh, though that's important, but really what does John think about God? I think that's important because, again, if we're invited to imbibe what John's referring to in teaching, I think it's important for us, first of all, to ask, do, what is John saying? And then whatever it is that John is saying, then we can say, I, I either agree with that or no, I don't agree with that. I'm going to continue to agree in uh, believe in the spaghetti monster in the sky. That's fine. I just want to make sure that you know what you're believing in uh, before you dismiss it, before you even engage in it. So with that being said, the people from the Bible Project created a wonderful video that's, I don't know, six minutes or something like that. And it does a more fantastic job than I could ever do in the time slot to help us understand who and what God is. So here's the little video. Enjoy it. And I'll jump back into the teaching. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now that makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. 
The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God in the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great. Let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes, once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the Spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's Spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God, and also God. It's God's Spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's Spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew Scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes, and then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. 
And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human, distinct from God, and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew Scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God, or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God. Or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible. Ruler, creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the Father as an eternally others-centered, life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the Father says from heaven, this is my Son whom I love. And then keep reading. In that story, the person who brings that message of love from the Father to the Son is the Spirit of God. So we've talked about God's Spirit. Here within creation, it's through the Spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the Spirit, he experienced the Father's love. But it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the Spirit would go out and share the Father's love with all humanity and with all creation. So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. It's good, huh? They actually have a whole series on this. I would highly recommend just checking out their website, um, Bible Project. They also have a really lengthy podcast, if you're interested in that as well. Um, it goes way deeper than what the video uh, does here. Um, anyways, I want to continue on in this idea because, again, where I think John's going with all this is not just simply just to blow our brains in terms of abstract ideas or thoughts about Jesus or this word, um, but really to kind of get someplace. And it's one of the clues on this is the very last verse that we read, verse 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That becomes really practical for us because I think all of us would identify and recognize we are familiar with that darkness. We've lived in that darkness. You are maybe currently right now living in this darkness. And this is the claim that John is making that's really bold and powerful and life and hope giving if you allow it to run its course. As we go on 
I want to make a couple other ideas and observations with regard to the passage here. So as it goes on, it says, the word was with God, and the word was God. Moving on down to that, let's take a look at, he was in the beginning. And again, just making our way through this. Verse 2, he was in the beginning, before all things, before all creation kind of came into being. He was there, whoever this word is. We know, again, I was just Spoiler alert, verse 14, you can read it. I'm going to just take away the punchline. It tells us who this word is. This word ends up manifesting, taking upon flesh and blood. And we'll get there in the next couple of weeks. He takes on flesh and blood and becomes human being and dwells among us and lives among us. And the question that we will begin to ponder and ask, what does it look like when God comes and takes up residency among us, broken, messed up, chaotic, and chaos creating human beings. What does it look like for this God? What does he do? How does he react? What does he step into? What does he take upon himself? How does he interact with other human beings that are chaos agents? He goes on to say, uh, he was in the beginning. Uh, next one in verse three, all things were made through him. All things, all things. What, what things? All things. All things visible, all things invisible. I'll read a passage in just a moment that will kind of reemphasize this. It goes on to say that in him was life. This is another really interesting thing I have written down up there. The word life is zoe. If you're familiar with you know any form of Greek, and uh, there's there's two words that oftentimes the Bible kind of uses to describe uh, the word life. Same word in the English. Uh, two different Greek words. One is bios. Get the word biology from. The other is zoe. Um, oftentimes defined as two different life forces or life forms. One um, animates a physical human body. Um, the other is zoe, which is sometimes described as like a psychological or a spiritual type of life. So you can have all human beings have bios. We are alive. You have a pulse. You have brain waves. You're able to interact with people. But the idea of actually having Zoe, where you're alive, truly alive, you can look in someone else's eyes and realize they are alive. You can also sometimes look into people's eyes and just realize there's nothing but death there. You know, Netflix just came out, and I probably would not recommend watching it, the whole Jeffrey Dahmer video. Do not watch it. It's just pure wicked and evil, but you get the idea. You already know where the story goes. But the storyline obviously is. I'm, I'm always, I don't know why, I've been fascinated by, by serial killers. But um, but here's here's what's fascinating to me. I mean, for just from, purely from a sociological, psychological level, just like how can someone uh, that you can interact with have physical life, but there's something of just death about them. This is, this is the idea. You can have bios, but not have Zoe. But whatever the word comes, he is the source of Zoe. He is the source of another life form or life force that, that brings life, that brings goodness, that brings wholeness. That You've been around people like this before. I'm sure all of us have. You can be, you can be around some people, and you spend time with them, and they just suck life out of you. You walk away from that, and you're just like, man, I'm, just, I'm tired. I know what I did. Like you just sat in the presence of someone that just was like a black black hole. They just sucked life out of you. Then you can be around other people and you walk away. You're like, man, I feel alive. I want to go eat ice cream or go for a walk on the beach or go do just go give money away to someone who's poor. I, I don't know. I want to go do something. What happened there? I'll tell you what happened there. You were in the in the presence of someone that has Zoe. They they breathe life upon you. You all know what I'm talking about. But whoever this word is, this word is the source of Zoe. And he goes on to say, this life is the light of humanity. 
This life is a light of humanity. If you want to put it this way, what is our greatest need today? I would argue it's Zoe. We need Zoe. We need life. Where does this come from? A, a, a new political party? A new revolution? The enforcement of an old stereotypical political system? Like, what? where does this come from? An, another sexual revolution? A new discovery of some biological life form on a different planet? Like, where, where will we get this from? And the argument of John is it does not exist apart from the Word. Because the Word in him was life. In this life, Zoe is the light of all humanity. And it goes on to say, last little segment here, and I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. This Zoe is the light of humanity, and this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If anything the past three years has shown to us is how much darkness is in this world. What are we going to do about it? How do we how do we fight it? How do we push it back? Throwing more money at something, creating a new again political framework or system, the Great Reset. Like, how are we gonna how are we gonna how are we gonna push back? How are we gonna bring forth this life that we need? Where does it come from? And then secondly, where do we even get the idea of like a like a justice system to enforce it or bring about? It's consistency so that all have availability or accessibility to this, this life form. And this is John's claim. It is so radical. It's so radical. It just gives me shivers even to think about what's available to you and I today, right now, in this space. Many of us, most of us, who are all too familiar with the darkness. This good news is for you. Because it, it's the promise that just like God spoke in Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible, into darkness, this primordial, uninhabited biosphere of life, he speaks into it and becomes habitable space where life can then flourish. And a lot of times people idea, identify that as like, man, God created the perfect world. God created a complete world. I like to make a distinction. It's not a perfect world. It's not perfect in a sense where it's like done, static. It's going to stay that way forever. That's not how God created the creation. Genesis 1 is God created the world so that it's complete, so that in that state, it has everything that's needed as humanity, human beings walk in obedience to God, say yes to God. From that, all sorts of goodness will continue to perpetuate itself over and over and over and over and over again. But unfortunately, what happens are human beings set out a revolt against God and seek to find wisdom elsewhere other than Zoe. And in their pursuit of grasping for life, they actually ended up grasping death and it brought forth chaos and a perpetuation of more complex forms of death. Death reigned. Death continues to reign in our world. And this is the claim of the gospel, that Jesus comes to do something about this. Last thing I want to just end with, uh, I'll, I'll read a little statement out of Colossians chapter 1. I'm not sure if I even have it. I do have it up there. Great. Colossians chapter 1, Paul, the another New Testament writer, says this. By Jesus, 
all things were created. Very similar to what, and reminiscent of what John has to say here. By Jesus were all things created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created for him, through him, and for him. In him, all things hold together. And you, this is where it gets really powerful. This is Paul's theological, massive statement connected to a very deeply personal thing. And all things in this word, this Jesus, are held together. And, says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds, you have now been made reconciled to this God. And this is the story of the gospel, is that somehow something in this world in which you live in, and it's, on one hand, it's, it's absolutely good and beautiful, but it's also riddled with brokenness and disease and death, reigns, but God has stepped into this to do something about it. He invites us to say yes to him. And lastly, I want to think about this idea of a framework of reality. I'm not sure if I have it. I do have this up here. So I'm going to make a couple quick statements on here. That New Testament writers are actually declaring what is happening here. This word is actually a new framework of reality to entirely hinge your life to, to affix your life to entirely. Now, I want to think about this because our culture is actually not a faithless culture. We live in a culture that is post-Christian. There's all sorts of sociologists over the past, you know, 15, 20 years have been saying America is definitely a post-Christian culture. If anything, what we've seen over the past 15, 20 years is that it's, it's more aimed at, like, how do we get rid of uh, the, the Christian hegemonic worldview that has been at the centers of society and power and politics and all sorts of other means? How do we get rid of that, which, again, leads to this idea of a post-Christian culture in which we live in? Um, and it's kind of caused a lot of people to be like, man, Americans are no longer faithful. faithful people, faithful people. I would argue, and most sociologists would as well, no, actually not the case. Human beings, Americans, are, are deeply committed to faith, but they're more secular forms of faith. And these are some different, as I was thinking about this, that our culture has this framework of reality from which it forms its creeds and its deeds around. So these are three different creeds, I think, that are very common and very popular in our culture today. I'll just kind of go through them real quickly. Number one is, I believe in science. I believe in science. Science is the creed that I profess, I confess, everything that's physical, everything that's tangible, everything that can be tasted, tested, measured, that's the creed I live by. That's the creed I orient my life around. We've seen that over the past three years, which is, you know, again, I'm not going to get into the politics of all this, but even like the vaccine and all that, it's like, well, we know the science. This is what the science says. Don't argue with the science. And then we also have other creeds um, and deeds that are kind of formed around, I believe in self. And these are two very popular ones. I believe in science, and I also believe in self. And then the third one is I believe in democracy. Rule, uh, well, self, by, by way, the word self or autonomy, we use the word autonomy. The word autonomy, autonomy means literally self-rule or self-law. Like, who is the law? Who is depicting the laws? Self is depicting the laws. And what's, what's interesting about this is that all of these cannot be true simultaneously. Like many would say, I believe in science, but I also believe in self. Do you realize that is a contradiction? Because at what point does science actually get the final say over what you say about yourself? You see, these are the, these are the cultural battles that we are seeing played out in our, in our world today. And all of them are faith claims. All of them. They're claims of saying, this is where truth is derived. This is where I live my life. This, these are the creeds I profess. And this is how I orient my, orient my life around. So whatever self believes and whatever I believe deepest in my heart of hearts, that's who I will be. That's how I will form my creed. That's how I'll form my, my daily liturgies to, 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 to give myself 
over to myself and whatever my desires are. A lot of sociologists have actually pointed out and they've observed that in our post-Christian culture, that people are actually kind of forming some form of like a religious fervor around these as well. Which what, what they're basically identifying is that within the concept of a religious fervor, that science, self, and even democracy, they take upon sort of a religious makeup. And again, this makes a lot of sense, especially because if, if religion has had such a massive impact upon Western societies for a long time, but now religion is no longer viewed as viable, uh, what's going to take its place? Uh, we, we know that, you know, that, that uh, nature hates and abhors a vacuum, but so something has to all fill in its place in, in, in that particular context. So what will be filling in the place of religion? Well, I would suggest to you uh, a belief in science, a belief in self, and a belief in democracy will then begin to fill in those places. And they begin to take upon sort of a religious zeal. And I would argue that this is what we've seen over the past three years. People have followed many of these things with a religious fervor. Religion, meaning you have ideas of like a priest or a person that is communicating the, the truth. They are, they are the high priest. They are the pope of truth. You do not argue with the pope. You argue with the pope, you'll be canceled. There are consequences to disagreeing with the high priest of whatever said science or self or democracy it is. You can also see this idea of revelation. Where does the revelation come? So, so for example, democracy, it would say uh, the, 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 the source of revelation is the, the Declaration of Independence or our Constitution. These are the things that we look to. We hold these things sacred. You do not argue with these things. You do not push against these things. Now, I, again, I, I want to just be very clear. I, I love the country we live in. It's awesome. But it's, it's, I want to be really, really clear. As a Christian, I also am able to look at America as another empire that's been on the conveyor belt of empires for the past thousands and thousands of years. It's just another one. It's a great iteration of the empire, but it's just another iteration of it. Which means at some point it will fail and it will stop. God is not in the business of trying to somehow uphold a democracy. By the way, this might come as a shock to some of you, God is a monarch. God is not open to try to incorporate your agenda, your ideas into his rulership. That might come as a shock to many of us. God is a dictator, a benevolent dictator. He's very good. And that's how he rules the, the universe. God's aim is vastly different than the aims that we see in our culture today. But the point that I want to make is this, is that even within each one of these things, they have various moral codes. They have an idea of what's right, what's wrong. Within the religion of self, if anybody were to challenge or to push back upon your notions of right or wrong, you're violating a code. There's consequence to be paid for that. Again, there's this religious fundamentalism in fact, there's a book that recently I just read. It was called the, 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 new, um, the new Puritanism. And the whole idea is that the old Puritanism, uh, Puritanism you guys are all familiar with the Puritans, right? You're familiar with the idea that they were very anti-dancing and drinking and having a fun time. Uh, what his whole argument within the book is to basically point out there is a new Puritanism that's in the world today. And it's, it's actually not Christian anymore. It's, it's taken upon different shapes and forms. And his whole point in the book is to say these things like self, science, and democracy have taken upon a religious fervency by its adherence. And what I suggest to you is that each one of these are a framework of reality. That you follow them. If you follow them faithfully, the hope is that they will promise you heaven. Heaven. 
But where the gospel comes in, and all the New Testament writers are saying, there's a whole other framework that's a framework above that framework. Jesus is Lord. And in this framework, he is the author of all creation, which means science. He holds it in his hand. Which means the idea of self. He's the one that has breathed your image upon your personhood. And the idea of democracy, it's just the means by which he uses in this world and at one point will be discarded and be replaced with his monarchical, benevolent dictatorship. And be really careful here to point out it's a good dictatorship. He loves people. It's an equitable dictatorship. It's one that's filled with equality, where he loves people. He invites all people, no matter where they're at, to trust him, to love him, to follow him. And this is what John is declaring, that Jesus is Lord. This is radically, in the first century, radically disruptive, not only to Jewish religious people that were like, there's only one God, and we are the religious leaders that rule the temple. No one's going to tell us how to run this place. And John comes in, and other New Testament writers would come in and say, no, actually, and Jesus comes in and says, no, actually, I'm going to completely disrupt the temple, and I'm going to declare myself as the one that is replacing the temple. How do we know that? Because guess what Jesus did all the time? He walked around and he says, you're forgiven of your sin. You're forgiven of your sin. You're forgiven of your sin. Wait a minute, who's supposed to be the one doing that? The priests in the temple. And Jesus is coming along and saying, no, God has a new plan, and I embody it. So the question that we oftentimes really should be asking is where and what does this rule of God look like when he steps into this world? What we're going to begin to find out in this journey through this amazing book is that when he comes in contact with people that are broken and ruined and messed up and sick and diseased and lost, he gives them their dignity back, gives them their humanity back, he forgives them of their sin. He washes them of their guilt and of their shame. He gives them food, those that are in need. This is the God that is unlike any other God you could ever even envision or imagine. This is a God that loves all human beings and invites them into a whole new way of framing their lives around him. This is an invitation for each one of us even right now, to just consider, to think about the claims that are being made in the New Testament. Uh, author Francis Schaeffer said this, and I'm done. He says in his book called The God Who Is There, he says, because God created a true universe outside of himself, not as an extension of his, of his essence, but a true history which exists, man is created, man as created in God's image is therefore a significant man in a significant history who can choose to obey the commandment of God and love him or revolt against him and ultimately end up having to pay those difficulties and challenges and hardships. Again, I'm just adding on to this. That oftentimes end up happening. When we choose to walk in light of what is true, then we find ourselves in alignment with this God. When we don't, when we make up a path for ourselves, when we choose our own ideas over God's, we find ourselves dealing with those consequences, and those consequences always unleash chaos into our lives, but also into the lives of other people. But the invitation over and over and over again is to see that God, in the midst of the chaos, steps into our lives to make all things new. 
So I don't know how you think about God or how you consider him even now. But the invitation right now is to invite him into whatever form of chaos you find yourself in. And ask him, God, make things new. This is going to be an amazing journey to look at the life of Jesus. As we close, I want it for us all to stand. I want to pray over us as we just reflect upon God's goodness and we take his claims deep into our very core, reorient our lives around this new framework. We identify other frameworks that we may have been hitching our lives to, identify those things, and what the New Testament language is is to repent from those, to turn from those things, to turn to the God that is there to allow him to make all things new. So God, right now, wherever we're at, wherever touch of circumstances we find ourselves in, Lord, we just now pause and we invite you into those. No matter how dark it is, no matter how painful it is, you are the God that brings life. You are the God that is life. You are the source of life. And we need that life right now more than anything else. Our culture needs that life. Our city needs that life. Our community needs that life. Jesus, we want to be that life. So God, as your representatives, as people in this church, whether we are followers of Jesus, whether we're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, God, right now, we just want to pause and say we want to be all in in your program, in your agenda, in your kingdom-building purposes. You are the great king of all kings. And we need you to reshape us, to remake us, to forgive us of our sins, to give us life so that as we scatter from here that we can then be life bringers, life givers, agents of life, agents of goodness everywhere we go. So help us to walk in that way, we pray.